So let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this day you've granted to us and uh, for the opportunity to come to your house to worship you, to study your word, to study about you. Open our hearts, Father. We thank you for this opportunity and we thank you for everyone who's here who wants a deeper understanding of who you are. Guide us in our class in Christ's name. Amen. By the way, at the end of the class, any of you who wanted to take this for Moody credit, I've got all the information up here and the sign-up sheets and everything else. So just see me after class. All right? And you can get a certificate of Bible doctrine by taking um, the set of courses we're offering here. Um, before we get on to the attributes of God, which is really the meat of the course, and this is sort of bummer because I really want to get into that. I mean, that's where we're really going to have some fun. Um, I thought it was necessary to talk about one topic before we do that. And uh, the reason this is important is because one of the things that you're going to find as we get into studying theology here, the doctrine of God, Christology, um, we get in later courses in the doctrine of man and sin and salvation, that uh, there are certain things that theologians have argued about over the centuries. Um, some of these go back to the third century A.D. or even beyond. And uh, one of the things we need to ask ourselves is when we start looking at theology is what is really the essential stuff that we have to worry about. There's a lot of things out there that are true but not essential. And so one of the things that we need to do is, as um, students of the Word is to know, okay, this is something that I cannot compromise on. This is an absolute of the faith. And for me to compromise on this, I'm going to sacrifice or jeopardize my eternal destiny or the eternal destiny of those who I'm in contact with or talking to. This is an essential. This other thing here, we can debate about it, we can talk about it, we can argue about it, but it's not going to keep you out of heaven. So one of the things that we need to talk about, just for a few minutes and just to form a framework, is how um, we can go about determining what is essential and what is not. And I like to get through this as quickly as I can because there is a whole paper on this. Um, when I send you the link um, for the class notes, I'll have a link on there that uh, there's a paper that I've written um, several years ago that talks about this. So you can go out there and read it for yourself. All right? But I think it's important that we all be able to understand what is critical and what is not. All right? And the issue is, given all the doctrinal positions raised by study of the Bible, what is essential? There's a lot of things we study in the Bible that are true, right? But they're not eternally determinative. Right? In other words, you can be muddled up on, does Christ come before, during, or after the tribulation for the rapture? You know, I'm a firm believer in the pre-tribulational position. But you know what? There's a lot of people in heaven that had no idea what that was even about. They had not even talked about it in the earlier centuries. Um, that's not an essential. Is it something important that we can want, maybe want to talk and debate and discuss? Sure it is. But it's not going to keep somebody out of heaven. It's not going to keep you from going to heaven. So we need to determine what are those hills that we absolutely have to die on. What are the absolute non-negotiables of the faith that we cannot give any quarter to. And so what I've done is I've split all the doctrines that you can think into this, what I call pyramid here. All right. And at the top here you see a, a little pyramid, the E. And then you've got a C and then you've got a P. And the sizes are important. All right. What are the E's? The E's are the essentials. Those are the things that we absolutely cannot um, argue about. Those are eternally determinative. We're going to talk about some of those, but let's take one of them, um, the deity of Christ. 
If you get muddled up on that, you're not going to heaven. Jesus is God. He's not a God. He's not a creation of God. He's not a spirit offspring of Elohim and one of his wives, as the Mormons say. He is fully God. And if you get that muddled up, you're going to miss heaven. You can't follow that one up. So that's an essential. That's an E. And there's a few of these. There's a few essentials. There's not hundreds and thousands of essentials in the Bible. There's, there's a few of them that we just absolutely cannot give any quarter to. We'll talk about some of those. Underneath that, you have things called convictions. These are different. Everybody has a different conviction in here about certain things. A conviction might be, um, uh, is our tongues valid today? Is it valid to speak in tongues today? All right. I have a conviction that says, no, they're not. Somebody else has a conviction that, yes, they are. Now, are we both going to heaven? Well, sure. If we got the essentials right, we'll go to heaven. All right. So that's a conviction. These are, these are things. Usually convictions come from your background, your training, maybe your dispensational background, how you were brought up, what church you went to. We all have convictions about certain things. Some convictions are stronger than others in some people. Yeah. Oh, somebody had to bring up purgatory. Um, that's all right. If you believe, if you believe in purgatory as a good Catholic does, all right, then you've got the person and work of Christ fouled up, which means you're missing an essential. All right. Christ, Christ either paid it all or he didn't. In a Catholic theology, he gets you started, but you finish the job. All right. And so that is an essential. All right. That's an essential. Okay. We're talking about evangelical Christians. You know, there are certain um, convictions might be uh, the role of women in the church is a conviction. Um, spiritual gifts, a conviction. Uh, here's another one. The mode of baptism is a conviction. I believe that uh, immersion is the best picture. But uh, if somebody sprinkles someone who's been saved as believer's baptism, are they necessarily not going to heaven? No. All right. That's not an essential. That is a conviction. It's something we may want to debate and talk about, but it's not eternally determinative. And then, of course, the biggest area is all the preferences. What's preferences? Those are things that don't matter. Some people like a certain version of the Bible over another. That's a preference. Now, unless you're a KJV only person, which is an essential. <laughs> you go out there and read some websites where that's the case. Um, but by and large, what version of the Bible you use is a preference. Um, another one here is your, um, for the most part, your mode of worship. You sing um, hymns or choruses or, you know, the, the contemporary worship. A lot of these things are in preferences. And all preferences are, they're not something to fight over. All right? They're not something to split over. Unfortunately, what happens in most churches? That's where you split. All right? That's where you split. Somebody said they had more trouble choosing the wallpaper on the bathroom, in the, in the bathroom of the ladies in their new church than they had over their doctrine. People wanted to split over the color of wallpaper or the carpet or what hymn books to use. So as we, as we sort out, okay, how do we determine? I'm going to show you how, how you can go about determining what is an essential of the faith. And these are some given postulates. These are, these are given truths, all right? The first one is every doctrine that we have, every, every theological position has one right answer, correct? Is that right? That's right. 
If we were to bring God down and ask him a question, there's one right answer. This, when it comes to doctrine, it's not a free-for-all. And one of the issues that we have in the modern day, especially in the emergent church, is doctrine is sort of like this quasi-wishy-washy thing that, well, you know, what's right for you is not really right for me. And there is no absolute truth. Um, every doctrine of the Bible, every biblical question you can ask has a right answer. Now, we may not know what that right answer is, necessarily. But ultimately, there is a right answer. All right? However, given that, not every doctrine is of identical importance. What do we mean by that? Well, those doctrines that impact the person and work of Christ and divine revelation are essential. Because you get that fouled up, you're going to miss heaven. But doctrines having to do with, for example, some of the finer points of eschatology, the doctrine of last things, whether you're pre-millennial or pre-tribulational, all those words, where you, where you stand on how, how's the world going to end? You know, whether you believe what uh, the LaHays wrote in their books, uh, um, you know, the, uh, what is it, the Left Behind series, all right? Whether you believe all of the fine points of that or whether you don't, that's not as important as getting the person and work of Christ correct, all right? So not every doctrine is of equal importance. There are some doctrines that we really need to pay attention to, others that are not as critical, all right? It doesn't mean that doctrine is unimportant, but relatively speaking, if you're going to get, get one of the doctrines wrong, which one do you want to file up? One that has to do with you getting to heaven, or one has in, having to do with something else? I'd rather get that one off. And then here's another one. Some doctrines are nearly impossible to understand in our fallen state. And we're going to talk about a couple of those. Um, one of those is the doctrine, and we're going to get to this, predestination election. Boy, we fight on that, don't we? Predestination election. And you know what? Unfortunately, there's nobody in this room that fully understands that. Because that's something that our human minds just have, we have difficult, get to difficulty grasping that. How about... Uh, Fully understanding what it means for Christ to be fully God and fully man. That's a tough one to figure out. Now, do I believe it? If somebody says, is he fully God? Yeah. Is he fully man? Yeah. Okay, explain that. Well, you know, I just, uh, well, uh, mm. and it's because of that noetic effect of sin, right? We don't have the ability to understand fully everything. Now, where God has made it clear, we just say, yes, I believe that. I don't understand it, but I'll go with it. But there are some things that in our fallen state we can spend a lifetime pursuing the, a knowledge of and maybe not get there. But now listen, here's the important thing. Are those essentials? No, they're not. They're not essentials. And we'll talk about that. Not every doctrinal issue has an identical weight of evidence. Let me give you an example. The deity of Christ, how hard is that to find in the Bible? Is it hard to find? It's all over the place, right? Everywhere you turn... You can find the deity of Christ. Now, what does it mean, uh, baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15? Anybody know what that one is? Boy, that's a toughie, isn't it? You know, there's a lot of commentaries written on what it is, what it means. <laughs> and uh, quite honestly, no theologian is absolutely sure. It's not an essential. It's mentioned by Paul, but we don't, we don't, there's not enough evidence to really help us understand definitively what that might mean. We can have various understandings and theories of it and still fall within the range of orthodoxy. 
Some doctrines are more easily proved than others, right? The deity of Christ, it's not hard to prove that one. I mean, there are scriptures all over the place. But some of these other doctrines, for example, if you want to go and prove the uh, pre-tribulational rapture of the church, that's a little tougher to pull off. Because it's harder to find 100% um, evidence for that. You can find a lot of things that hint to that way. But there's no passage that absolutely... Get, you know, I wish, Christ, I wish the Holy Spirit would have given us a passage that gave us a blow-by-blow -blow breakdown of end-time events. This is going to happen, then this, then this, then this. One spot, it will solve all of these problems. But he didn't. <laughs> we, have to, we have to search it out. This is important. Essentials don't change over time. What do we mean by that? If something is essential in the first century, it's essential today. Essentials do not change over time. Now, this is where, for example, we split from Roman Catholicism, where Roman Catholicism comes up with new essentials over time. They actually come up with new doctrines that you have to believe. One of them is the Immaculate Conception was conceived of back in the Council of Trenton and put in by Vatican II. Early on, they didn't believe that, but it became an essential. Biblical essentials, the things that keep you out of heaven, will not change over time. God is not creating new essential doctrine. It's all there. All right? He's not changing his mind. And if it is essential, this is important, if it's essential, it's clear. It's clear. You can find it in Scripture. You can find it all over Scripture. An essential is not something that we need to be confused about. It is clear what an essential is. So if somebody comes up and says that they found a new revelation of some essential doctrine that's been hidden from the church for 2,000 years, don't need to listen to them. Because God has made his doctrine. Why is that? Why has God made his essentials clear? Why do you think? They're essential. He wants you to go to heaven. God wants you to believe in him worse than you do. God's not going to hide essential truth and make it impossible for you to figure out. It's there. It's clear. It's all over the place. All right? I want to make a comment, too, on, on the issue of um, that we have the most evidence for the essentials. Uh, it just so happens that even from an apologetic perspective, um, we have, I mean, for the resurrection of Christ, we have evidence even beyond the scripture. There's a lot of great argumentation for the existence that Jesus Christ really was raised from the dead. I mean, just um, because even, uh, even the worst critics of scripture will still agree that Paul wrote books like Galatians and things like that, which in Galatians he has conversations with eyewitnesses of the resurrection, eyewitnesses who died for their testimony, of which, which is, I mean, there's just wonderful, wonderful evidence that we can go into more later, but it just so happens not only does scripture support the, the essentials more, but even the argumentations of, of historical record also. God, and, and please understand, and we're going to reiterate this again, Dan's pointed out, God is in the business of revealing himself. He is not going to hide things that you need to know. God is not playing a celestial game of Easter egg hunt where, you know, you're getting warmer, you're getting closer. No. God wants you to know this truth. And he's going to make it clear. And he's going to make it understandable for anybody. You don't need to be a theologian to figure some of these things out. All right? And that's, what, that's, that's the beauty of God's revelation. And by the way, we all have the Holy Spirit, right? Who guides us into all truth? The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. Alright? So God has made himself clear in history. So some practical considerations. I'm just going to go through that. Um, 
Sometimes a doctrinal issue may fall into one, more than one area. For example, I'm going to speak of myself personally. Um, you know, uh, let's take the doctrine of, um, I'm going to get myself in trouble right off the bat. Oh, who cares? The role of women in the church. All right? He's laughing already. God, right. But I, read, but I use it in my paper, all right? Now, I have, a, I have a conviction that, you know, I don't believe women should be pastors. But that's not an essential, by the way. You know that. Okay? It's not an essential. Are you going to get out of heaven if you believe that women can be elders and pastors? No, no. But I have a conviction against that. All right? I just don't believe it's right. Some people don't have a strong conviction on that. And in my conviction, it's not a strong... In some areas, as other, I I, won't, I don't mind women teaching classes and things like that. Um, some people have a strong, you know, um, negative conviction about that. I don't, but it, it it might change. And as you sort through all the things that you really believe strongly in, you know, they might fall into different areas. The important thing is, though, we need to keep the essentials pure. Essentials are essentials. We can debate the others, but we can't debate the essentials. Some doctrinal issues in the Bible do not belong in the essential cat, even though they're true, right? Here's an example. Was Jonah swallowed by a whale? Yes or no? Uh, not <laughs> See? Was he swallowed by a big fish? Yeah, not necessarily a whale, but he was swallowed by a big fish. You know, there are some very solid, orthodox, Bible-believing people that teach that Jonah is a, is a fable. The book of Jonah is a fable. It was, they believe it's a, you know, it was an illustration. Now, are they going to go to heaven if they're right on the essentials? Yeah, and they're going to wind up talking to Jonah. Jonah says, no, I really was swallowed by the fish. All right? So that's not an essential. Even though I believe it's patently true, patently obvious, yes, he was swallowed by a fish, you know, some people don't put it there. All right? Um, some people place a doctrine in different areas depending on your traditions and religious background. If you are a strong Baptist, is believer's baptism essential to you? Just about. <laughs> I grew up in some churches where it was, almost. But when you look at what an essential is, keeping you out of heaven, no, it's not. It's a conviction, but it's not an essential. I believe, and this is my personal opinion, that when it comes to the essential, that's where you break fellowship. If somebody does not believe in the deity of Christ... How can you have fellowship with them spiritually? You can't. Notice what I mean here. This is fellowship. This is not friendship. I'm not talking about separating from them as friends. I'm talking about when it comes to um, the fellowship over the Word of God, over the Scripture. That's what I'm talking about here. They're in, a van, they're in a mission field, actually. If they mess up on the essentials, they're a mission field. But when it comes to fellowship... When it comes to working together in the body of Christ, you have to break fellowship at that level because they are denying an essential of the faith. You, you, what concord has Christ with Belial, it says? You can't um, fellowship with people at that level. It, at the conviction level, it might limit it. Um, personally, you know, I'd have trouble with somebody. If somebody really believed very strongly, very firmly that you have to speak in tongues as a Christian... That would limit my fellowship with them. I, I, I wouldn't label them as a heretic, all right. But I would have trouble fellowshipping with them because, you know, they keep wanting to bring this thing up again and again and again. That's going to cause friction, all right. But essentials is really the issue that we need to focus on. Most church splits occur at the preference level. They fight over um, 
what version of the Bible to use. They fight over church decor, all kinds of stuff. We're not the, as believers. I don't think that's where we're to fight. We're to fight our battles. Now, if we got to fight our battles, let's fight our battles where it really counts. Okay, we're at the essential level where you're talking about eternal destinies of people. That's where we need to focus our attention. This other stuff we can have convictions about, we can have preferences, we can talk about it, but let's not split churches over that. And yet, in my years of being in churches, most of the time I find that the biggest battles, the biggest fights in the church are all over preferential issues that don't matter at all. Doctrinal issues may change over time, but essentials do not. Essentials will never change. The deity of Christ was as important in the first century as it is today. It's the same thing. Nothing's changed. God's not added or removed any essential doctrine. It's all the same. And one of the things I noticed here, just as an example, your position might change over time. I used to be a dyed-in-the-wool Baptist. I'd put baptism up as an essential. But you know what? The more I studied the scripture, the more I found that it's not going to keep you out of heaven. In fact, you don't even need to be baptized to go to heaven. Right? So how can it be an essential? It can't. It can be a conviction, but it can't be an essential. So I had to shift that. And what I found just personally over the years of I, as I've studied the Scripture is that the number of my essential doctrines, the number of them has gone down, but my um, willingness to die for them has gone up. Alright? The number's gone down, but my conviction to die for those essentials has gone up. I'm more convinced of them than ever. All right, and that's one of the things I've noticed in my life. Um, what about um, all the mainline denominational splits going on today? Uh, essentials? Or? Well, since most of, the, most of them are not even not even evangelical in the sense of being even, most of them don't even care about the essentials. They're not even orthodox to begin with. So then it's a free for all. It doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, that's how I'd put it. Yeah. On that note, it's been my experience. We had to leave a church over an essential doctrine. They brought in a um, a guy to speak on how you can get to heaven as well being a Muslim as you can following Christ. We had a really pro- real big problem with that. But in that church, they actually had the classic carpet argument. Like we were there in the church business meeting over. And then what my experience has been, if you if you minimize the importance of absolute truth and doctrine, well then the only thing left then is feelings and preferences and emotions. And so it becomes like the in, in those kind of environments, if there is no absolute truth, then the only thing that matters is whether or not you've hurt my feelings. And so you that's that's the I, mean, I always say if you're if you're tempted to leave a church or change something or have a big fight over a non essential, then maybe you need to start thinking about, all right, well how do I view the essentials? Maybe I Maybe I've lost my, my passion and my zeal for the essentials. Because, I mean, it, you know, in Ephesians, Paul talks about we're, we're baptized into one body. You know, we are, we're, there should be unity as a result of the essentials. Um, if there is disunity, it probably is due to the fact that we aren't paying enough attention to the essentials. And stuff. Yeah. Why are essentials essential? They form a theological framework centered on the gospel of Christ. At that framework is immediately compromised if you take one of these essentials away. Listen, what an essential doctrine is centers around the person and work of Christ. Who is Christ? What did he do? And how does that impact me? All right. 
And closely centered on that is the authority of Scripture, right? If you come along and say, well, you know, I don't really think this is really the inspired and errant Word of God. I think it contains the Word of God. If you search long enough, you might find some things in there. All right, now you've just reduced theology to a free-for-all, right? Because you, what you might think is the Word of God, I might not think is the Word of God. You come to the Jesus Seminar where they vote on, is this saying one of the sayings of Jesus or not? You go out and look at that. It's the Jesus Seminar. And they head by a guy named Robert Funk. And uh, basically they're trying to determine what is the authentic sayings of Jesus in the Gospels. And the way they do this is they meet and they vote with marbles. And they've got a red marble that says, yes it is. A pink marble says, maybe he said it. A gray marble says, I'm not sure he said it. The black marble says, definitely not. And so they talk about it, and then they vote with marbles. And when they lose all their marbles, they get the right scripture. But, and they did this, and they came up with one verse in the Gospel of John that Jesus said. Everything else was doubtful. That's what happens when you get a bunch of liberals who deny, deny the authority of Christ, authority of the scripture, authority of the word of God. You come up with no authority at all. This is an essential. This is an essential because this is going to tell you about Jesus. If you don't, where do you find out about Jesus? The Word of God. So if the Word of God is not the Word of God, how do you know you've got the right Jesus? You don't. Alright? So this is essential. Denying the reality of sin. There's another one. You know, we have a society today that says, well, you know, people aren't really evil. They just made a couple of bad mistakes and, you know, but uh, basically we're all good. No, we're not all good. Humanity is not all good. The Bible says you're radically depraved. What does that mean? Sin has affected every part of you. It's affected you. It's affected your way of thinking. It's affected your way of feeling. It's affected the decisions that you made. doesn't mean you're as bad as you could be, right? Because there's a lot of people that are worse than we are. But we've all been affected. And if you deny that we've been affected by sin, what need is there of a Savior? There isn't. You can save yourself. So we need to be sure, and as we work through the class, we're going to point out, hey, this is essential. Now, this is a debated issue. This is not essential. We're going to point these things out to help you know where we're headed. What are some essentials? I just list these out. We're almost done here. Inspiration, authority, scripture. That's essential. You miss that, you don't have the right word of God. You have something that's not. Uh, the virgin birth is an essential. What do we mean by that? Well, Jesus Christ had a divine origin, right? If Jesus Christ was not born of a virgin, he was not the sinless son of God, he is not the savior of the world, we're in trouble. That's important. Substitutionary atonement, what does that mean? He died for me, he took my place. Instead of me dying, Christ died, he took my place. He substituted himself. The deity of Christ, he's God. He's not a God, he's not part of God, he is God. We don't understand that, he is God. We're going to talk about that. Uh, the Trinity, what is that? The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. All three are God. All three of them. There's, not, there's one God in three distinct personalities. Do we understand that? No. But the Bible teaches it, so we just say, okay, I'll take God as his word on that one, and I'll believe it. <laughs> um, justification, this is important. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's important. Why is that important? That's important because if you were to bring, and, and please understand, when I pick on Catholicism here, I'm not picking on Catholics, people. I'm picking on the system, all right? Understand the difference? It's not the people. It's the system. Catholicism says, if you ask them, are you saved by faith in Christ, what would they say? Yes, Absolutely, they are. 
Absolutely. Ah, yeah, yeah, see? We, once you fit this alone in there, and all of a sudden, no, no, we don't agree with that. We believe we're saved by Jesus Christ, but not alone. Not alone. And that's why it's an essential. That's why it's an essential. Paul talks about this. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, Having begun in the Spirit, you're now perfected by the flesh. Stupid. What are you thinking, guys? It's by grace or it's by works. You pick one. You can't have them both. Bodily resurrection, second coming. Why is that important? Well, he really rose again from the dead. He really is coming back. <laughs> he really is returning. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says, If you do not believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, your faith is vain. Go home. Don't go to church. Go home. Watch TV. Have a beer. If you don't believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, why are you coming to church? You're miserable. You're wasting your time. Go do something else. Um, some convictions, and I put these are mine, these, these are not yours, these are mine. The mode of baptism. Are you baptized by immersion, sprinkling? The role of women in the church is a conviction. Sign gifts, eye tongues, miracles. Um, Lordship salvation, we're going to talk about that later. Don't worry about it now. Um, the use and practice of Christian psychology. I hate Christian psychology. I don't think it's... Well, we'll talk about that later. I get in trouble if I keep going. I'm looking for a fight. I know it. All right. Um, some preferences. What's that? Worship styles. To a large degree, worship style is a preference. We all are comfortable with various styles of worship that we've grown up with. Kinds of music, hymns, you know, choruses, all of that. Bible versions, for the most part, is a preference. All right. Unless you use what is a, a, a really a corrupt version. Um, most all of the ones that you would pick up are good versions. Dress codes, that's an interesting one. There are some churches where, you know, if, if you're a woman and you walk in with a pair of slacks, they'll throw you out. You're not supposed to come in there like that. Um, and if you don't wear a tie, I'm doomed because I hate ties. They remind me of being hanged, you know. Um, gray areas are preferences for the most part, right? Dancing, you know, a lot of this thing. Here's one. Does the Bible prohibit the use of alcohol? It doesn't. It prohibits you from being drunk. See? But now, I, from the background I came from, you know, if you touched alcohol, you're damned. I mean, that was it. You're obviously not a Christian. That's not. That's a preference. So, I just mention these here just so that we understand as we start working through the attributes of God and we start looking at the theological doctrines that we're going to be looking at, some of these things we'll be talking about are essential. Some of the things are not Essential. They're important. We can debate about them. Maybe we won't even, maybe we'll study them our entire life and not get to where we, we think we really understand it. But it's not an essential. So we need to know where to draw the line. So that's why I wanted to mention this here. Oh, further reading there, I'll, I'll send the link out here. But there's a, if you go to, um, if you go to theopenword.org, theopenword.org, that's my personal website. Um, if you go under general articles, I've got a paper that I wrote on drawing the line. I, I talk about all of this. So if you want to go out and read it, you can do that. All right? So having said that, let's get back to theology proper. I, I said I wanted to spend 35 minutes on that tops, and I did 37. So, so I'm close, all right? Dan said I wasn't allowed to spend more than 35 minutes on it. All right? Because we really want to get into this. And we want to just, this is really where we want to be. 
what we're going to be doing now for the next few weeks, probably about six weeks, is we're going to be slowly working our way down through the attributes of God. This is really, I think this will be really enjoyable to all of us, fascinating, give us some thinking, <laughs> some stuff to think on and ponder. Um, but we're going to talk about the attributes of God. What is God? Who, or what is He like? Now, when we talk about attributes, what are we talking about? What do we mean by that? Well, we're talking about qualities of the entire Godhead. Not just one person in the Trinity. Now, this is important. Okay? We're going to talk a lot about the Trinity in a few weeks. Okay? But the thing to understand is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equally God. Okay? There's no difference in terms of what the the uh, classical um, apologists now called their essence. And the fancy word for that is hypostases. That will show up on our, doctor, our definitions page. Hypostases. There's no distinct, distinct difference in their being. In other words, the, the Holy Spirit is as eternal as the Father is. The Holy Spirit is as omniscient and omnipotent as the Father is. There's no distinction between any member of the Trinity when it comes to the attributes. They all equally share them in equal measure. And that's very important because there are tons and tons and tons of heresies over the years of the church that have crept in because people want to make Jesus a little bit different than the Father. And He's not. Okay. Now, when it comes to the work of each member of the Trinity, is there a difference? Yes. When it comes to their work, what role they take upon themselves, there is a difference. But that does not mean that Jesus is inferior to the Father. It does not mean that the Holy Spirit is inferior to the Son because the Bible says the Son sent the Holy Spirit. There's no inferiority. But when it comes to the, to the drama of redemption, we're going to talk a lot about this in the, in, the, in the months ahead. When it comes to the drama of redemption, each member of the Trinity plays a distinct role. But each member is equally God in every aspect. So when we talk about an attribute, this is true for all members of the Trinity. Attributes are permanent. They don't change. Now this is very important to understand because one of the major heresies or that, that have, that's come, well, crept out of liberalism but is coming in is the idea of process theology or open theism where they say, well, you know, God is in the process of becoming. He's changing. We're going to talk about immutability. And what they say is, well, God's sort of developing as he goes along. He's sort of working things out as he works through history because God doesn't really know infallibly what's going to happen. He's just sort of making it up as he goes along. And since he's big and powerful, he can do things. But no, the Bible says these attributes of God are permanent. They are, and here's the thing. They are an essential, intrinsic part of his being. He can't lose them. He can't gain them. He can't give them up. God cannot decide, hey, I'm just going to be omniscient for a few days. <laughs> They're part of Him. Yes? Right. It's a denial of omniscience. Alright? And we're going to talk about that. So, I mean, we're going to spend some time on that because it's really starting to leak into the church in a lot of different ways. Um, the emergent church has really bought into some of this. Alright? And it's very important that you understand. It's interesting, um, I was listening to somebody say, you know, they've listened to all of the heresies over the you know, years, denying the deity of the Holy Spirit, denying the deity of Christ. 
And now when it comes to open theism, he says now they're even denying the deity of God. That's really what it does. It's denying the deity of God. He's really not God. He's something else. Qualities, attributes are intrinsic. God can't change. And what do we mean by that? We mean by that is God is a God of love, which means he can't become more loving or less loving than he already is. God is a God of wrath. He can't decide, I'm not going to be wrathful against sin today. That's an intrinsic part of who he is. God is a God of justice. So therefore, God cannot say, well, when it comes to redemption, I'll suspend my justice in this case. No, God cannot do that. It's an intrinsic, essential part of his being. He cannot be other than what he is. All right? And we're going to talk about those. And again, this sort of um, repeating it, they're inseparable from his being and existence. And when God talked to uh, Moses, the burning bush, Moses said, who am I going to say um, is sending me? I mean, you know, they're going to want to know who sent me. What did God tell him? I am. What does I am mean? <laughs> yeah, it's not saying, God is not saying, I am the, I was <laughs> sent you. He's not saying, I, the I am becoming is sending you. The I am is sending you. God is immutable. We're going to talk about immutability. God's character, what he is, his attributes do not change. He doesn't add new attributes. He doesn't take anything away from what he is. They're an intrinsic, essential component of his being. They're inseparable from God himself. And we're going to see these as we go through. Now, one thing we need to understand as we embark on these, this study of God's um, attributes is there's a component of what we call inscrutability. What does inscrutability mean? Pardon? Well, inscrutable. Immutable. The scrutiny that you put God through under the theological microscope will show him to be God. It'll show him to be God, but there's a, what inscrutability really means, and, and it has that component, but it really means we can't fully understand. Something's inscrutable. Okay. We can't fully, completely understand it. We can learn about it, we can see it, we can analyze it right. But there's a sense in which, will any of us in here ever understand God? No. Why is that? He's infinite. We're finite. (laughs) He exists outside the box, right? Remember the box? He's outside the box. We're in the box. If we're in the box, can we understand anything outside the box? No. That which is outside has to come inside. So there's a sense in which, folks, no matter how much you study God, no matter how many years you spend learning what he is like, there's a sense in which there are some mysteries to him that you will never fully, completely comprehend. You may get a little bit better at him. You may understand him a little bit better. But you know what? You'll never fully comprehend God. He's infinite. You're not. Um, Will it change, though, when we're with him? Um, No, it won't. Um, Will we know more? Sure. But are we... See, here's here's the thing. Let's think about this a minute. If you're going to know an infinite being, what must you also be? Infinite. Are you infinite? In the eternal state, will you be infinite? No. You'll be a lot smarter than you are now, right? Because we won't have the effects of sin. We will have a full understanding. We'll, we'll have that face-to-face in, face interaction with God. But even then, we are finite created beings. 
And as such, we will never fully comprehend the infinite God. And what the thing is, the cool thing about heaven is, we're going to spend all of eternity with God, finding more and more and more about Him, and never hit the bottom of the well. Because He's infinite. He's infinite. He's beyond our ability to understand. And that's what this point is bringing out. Since God is infinite, an infinite amount of time would be required to understand Him, right? And here's a question, and we're going to answer this later on. Can an omniscient God, an omnipotent, omniscient God, can He create another omniscient being? Could God create somebody with omniscience? No. Why? Because by definition, the act of being created means that there's a time you didn't exist, which means there's a whole lot you don't know. God cannot create another omniscient being. Nor can he create another sovereign being. Which makes me feel good because Satan is not going to pull it off. Satan is not sovereign. God is. Satan is not. So, we're going to spend all of heaven, all of eternity, getting to know God. Enjoying that in a way that we can't even fully, we can't even comprehend in our fallen state. And yet, we'll never really know all there is to know about Him. Because He's infinite. It'll be the pursuit of heaven. And here's something here too. God's attributes, even the attributes we talk about are infinite. So, for example, can we share God's love to an extent? Sure, right? We love. But can we love like God loves? No. Because no. God's love is an infinite love. Ours is far less. But we can certainly share in that love. And we can understand something about God's love by understanding something about the love that we have for others. All right? But even then, it's just a fraction of that which is God's. This is very important. This will save you from a lot of heresy that you can fall into. All right? And that is, God's attributes exist in a perfect balance with one another. All right? A lot of people come along, you know, and you talk about the omnipotence of the God, and they ask some silly question like, well, can God make a rock too big? You can't lift it. Well, that would be a stupid thing to do, right? That would go against what? God's attribute of wisdom. God's not going to do something like that. What we like to do is we like to throw these like hypothetical things at God, you know, and try to make it out that, that, that uh, trying to find up some inconsistency to make God not God. God's not going to make a rock too big to lift it since it would not be a wise thing to do. There's no need to do that. God cannot sin, right? When, when we, and that's why, that's why it's important. When we say God is omnipotent, often people say, what does it mean that God is omnipotent? They say, well, God can do anything He wants. And that's... True to an extent, right? Can God do anything He wants? Yes and no. The word is yo. You're going to learn that word here a lot. Yo. Yes and no. Yes, He can do anything He wants. No, He cannot do anything that would violate His nature. Alright? Right. You can't, he cannot violate His nature. He won't want to do that. Alright? So God cannot sin. He can't. God cannot do that. It's impossible for God to sin. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to be unfaithful. God can't, He can't do that. 
So God can do anything, but everything he does is consistent with his attributes, all of them, in perfect balance with one another. Okay? And so therefore, when it comes to God's justice and mercy, how is that played out? It's played out at the cross, right? How can God be just on one hand and the justifier on the other? Romans 3 asks that. How can he be just and the justifier? He can do that because somebody took our place. That's the substitutionary atonement. The reason that God can forgive you of your sins is because Christ took your place. <laughs> and had Christ not taken your place, no matter how much God loved you and God wanted to forgive you, he couldn't. He can't. He can't violate justice. Every attribute of God exists in perfect harmony with every other attribute. And whenever you emphasize one attribute of God over another, you wind up in error every time, all the time. I listened to a debate on Moody Radio between Erwin Lutzer and Clark Pinnock. Clark, you don't want to listen to Clark. Anything Clark says, ignore, okay? But, but it was a debate between Clark Pinnock and Erwin Lutzer on the eternality of hell. Is hell really eternal or not? Now, what does the Bible say about that? It's eternal, right? I mean, the best verse on that is, I think, uh, Revelation 14:11. The smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever and ever. Well, you know, oh, Clark doesn't like that. He doesn't like the idea of a God that would have this, what he calls an eternal chamber of horrors. That doesn't fit his concept of God's love. So what Clark has done is he said, no, that's not right. We can't, I can't believe in an eternal hell because that would violate God's sense of love. Alright, here's the problem with that. What has Clark just done? He put one over the other. Because what is God also a God of? Justice and wrath. And God is not going to allow the justice and wrath to be overruled by love. Nor is God going to allow his love to be overruled by his justice and his wrath. They all exist in perfect harmony, perfect balance. And whenever you start trying to put your human thinking and understanding and your ideas on God, trying to make him, trying to fit into some mold that you want him to fit into, you're going to be in trouble or in danger of violating this principle. God is a God of complete harmony. No attribute takes precedence over another. They're all perfectly in union together. God cannot lie. Here, God cannot forgive sin without somebody paying the price. We violated our relationship with God. How can we be restored to Him? God provided a way in the person of Christ. And God's not going to say, well, we'll just forget about their sins in this case. No, somebody had to pay the price. And Christ did. He took your place. Now, when you start looking at the attributes of God, there are different ways to categorize them. I just mentioned them here. Because as you read theological works and you study in your own books and things like that, you're going to come across these. Some uh, uh, categorize them as moral versus natural. Moral attributes of God deals with uh, the moral concepts, the right and wrong. For example, justice, truth, things like that. Um, natural uh, attributes are like his omnipotence, omnipresence, okay, omniscience. Uh, they categorize them in these different ways and as they talk about the attributes of God, they put them in these categories. Some put them in uh, relative versus absolute. Relative attributes are those attributes manifested in relationship 
to his creation? How does God relate to his created order? And you would have things like mercy, justice, grace, forgiveness, kindness, goodness. And then absolute are attributes that he has. If creation didn't exist, this would be true of God. Alright? Then you have these ones that most use, communicable versus incommunicable. Communicable attributes are those that God can share with us. We share with him. For example, uh, we love, right? We share, we share that attribute with God. God loves, we love. Um, God, it gets angry, we get angry. All right? We can share these attributes with him. Now, can we share them in the degree that God has them? No, we cannot, right? Infinite, finite. But we can share them. We can understand something about him. But then we have these, what we call, incommunicable attributes. No counterpart exists. Omniscience. Nobody knows it all, unless you've got a teenage son. Um, nobody knows everything. Yeah. All right. Well, you've got somebody omniscient in your household then. Um, but they're, they're incommunicable. They can't, God cannot create, here's, here's another way to put it. God cannot create a being with these attributes. He can with these. Incommunicable sovereignty. Can God create another sovereign being? No, because by definition, then nobody's sovereign, right? So he can't do that. Can God create another omnipotent being? No, because the very act of being created means you didn't exist at some point. You have a beginning, and your existence depends on something else, not yourself. All right? So those are the categorizations. So having said that, let's look at the first of God's attributes. You'll be happy to know we're on schedule. First of God's attributes. God is spirit. God is spirit. John 4.24, Christ is talking to the woman at the well of Samaria. He uh, had to go through Samaria. He had a divine appointment with this woman. And she asked the question, so where, uh, where should we worship? Should we worship up at Gerizim or down in Jerusalem where the Jews worship? Because she was a Samaritan and the Samaritans were not allowed in Jerusalem. So they came up with their own system of religion based at Mount Gerizim, pretty much identical with Judaism. It just had a different spot where they would meet and do their, their temple rituals. And she said, what, where do we worship? Do we worship at Gerizim? Do we worship down in Jerusalem? And Christ told her, said, the hour is coming in which you will neither worship in this mountain or that mountain. Why? Because God is a spirit. What spirit means is God is everywhere. God is everywhere. God is invisible. God has no physicality. This is important. God has no physicality. God is not a, God is not a physical being. Okay? And when you get to heaven, you say, well, wait a minute. You know, when I get to heaven, you know, it says stuff about, you know, seeing God on the throne. What's he look like on the throne? Well, when God is pictured in heaven, what do you see on the throne? You see Jesus, if you see anything, it's Jesus. But do you see God? You see glory. You see a blazing, brilliant, blinding light that no man can approach. That's God. God is, has no physicality. Now, this is different than what the Mormons teach us. They teach us that God, Elohim, has a body. In fact, he could show up and come to church in a three-piece suit and you wouldn't know him from anybody else. That's not what the Bible says. God has no physical being. 
And he said, well, what does it mean when, uh, you know, it talks about when Moses wanted to look at, at God, wanted to see God. And God says, well, I'll put, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll put my hand over you. You can see my back parts, whatever that is. He must have had a physical being. Well, what did Moses probably see? The glory, right? The blazing glory. Yeah. And had he seen the full glory, what would have happened? He would have been smoked. All right? He would have been fried. He would not have lived. All right? Because no man can see God and live in his full glory. God can veil it. But, God, but the full glory we will not see until we get to heaven in our glorified state. God has no physicality. He has no spatial limitations. This goes along with the idea of being omnipresent. God exists everywhere. And here's the point. He exists everywhere equally. It's, you know, when we talk about God, usually what do people think? Where does God live? Heaven. God exists everywhere. You say, well, why, why is it that the Bible talks about God being in heaven? Well, that's where we see the blaze of the brilliance of his glory, right? But God is as much here right now with us as he is in heaven. There's no difference. The, just the thing is, we don't see the glory here. If we did, we'd all die. He's not destructible. Being spirit means there's no destructibility. There's no aging. You don't get old. There's, no, there's nothing to get old. God has no physical, solid, mat, material existence. Timeless and ageless. God exists before time. God created time. You know that? The creator of time is God. God is the being who exists outside of time. He's not subject to the laws of time. Because he's the creator of it. He's ageless. God is invisible. Will we ever see the Father? No. Who will we see? We'll see Jesus, right? And in fact, Colossians 1.17 says, Jesus is the express image, icon of the Father. But we will never see the Father in heaven. It's not like we're going to be walking next to God in heaven and being able to shake his hand. And He's invisible, but Christ is visible. The Father is not. And because of that, he cannot be what? can't reduce him to an image. What's the first commandment? I've known the guy before me. The second is don't make a... How do you make a graven image of nothing? There's no representation. God is invisible. He, you, can't, you can't create anything that looks like God because he has no, nothing to look like. He's utterly other than anything that we can think of. God is visible. He cannot be reduced to an image. And that's why, for example, he said do not make a graven image. Now, although God is invisible and cannot be seen, we can witness what? This slide is missing, just so everybody knows. This slide is missing? Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, we will, it's up on the web. We'll have it up on the website. One of the things as we go through this, we'll add a few slides hither and yon, so if you always go back to the website, you'll get the latest and greatest. Um, although God is invisible and cannot be seen, we can see His evidence in creation, right? Can you see the wind? Anybody, can, can you look at the wind? What do you see? It's effects. Alright. So we do see, for example, in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God, the blazing, brilliant light of His presence. We see that. We don't see an image. We see the effects of God. 
And we see this as an illustration, for example, in John 3 where Christ is talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, you know, you don't see the wind, but you know it's there because you see the trees move and you feel the breeze. You don't see the Holy Spirit, but you see the effects that he has. God is there. God is spirit. And the invisible God is most clearly seen in what? The visible sun. How did God, the invisible God, the creator, who sits outside the boundaries of space and time, outside the box, how did he reveal himself? He became a person. Jesus Christ. And if you want to know what God is like, you want to know what the Father is like, what did Christ tell his disciples in John 14? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Don't you guys get it yet? Because what they ask, show us the Father. Show us the Father. Christ says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the word here in Colossians 1.17 is icon, E-I-K-O-N. And it was used to refer to stamping an image on a coin. It was a die. It was a stamp. Christ, if you want to know what God is like, Christ is the stamp. He is the exact stamp of God. And when you see Christ, you see God. You know what he is like. All right? Well, next week we will pick up with the next set of next attribute of God, personality. God is a person. And we will talk about that. Any comments or questions or anything? Yes? Um, when you were talking about the glory of God and, and how bright he is and how we would be smoke if we were if we were to see him. And thinking about that activism does take away any worry for the election like you were talking yeah. about. And different people like you know, rises up how people are trying to implement their way in politics and in schools and so anti God and get upset and worry about it. But and we're going to we're going to find out you know when you look around what's happening in politics and evolution versus creation debate you know what God created us <laughs> it doesn't matter what the schools teach you right and we get all exercised and worked up somehow we got to defend God look God's perfectly capable of defending himself he doesn't need our help all right. Yes, Dan. Housekeeping issues. Uh, if you need old copies of the uh, of past lessons, uh, you can go to the website and there's a questions link that will automatically email me. You can email that to there. Or any questions related to something that we're covering, uh, a term that you don't know, sometimes the tendency is we'll just say something and then we might not think about like, wow, somebody might not know that. Uh, send that send that question or any even other questions, something you want covered later or uh, just something you've been thinking about, feel free to send that um, really yeah. and And the other thing, make sure you sign the, uh, the attendance sheet if you haven't. Please do that. We need to know who you are. Make sure your email is on there. And then all of those who wanted to take this for Moody credit, See me after the class here, and I got all the stuff you need to know. All right, so let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for being here with us. And I pray that as we ponder what we've gone over, we've sort of gone over quite a bit. But as it percolates through our minds this week, I pray that you would just give us understanding and bring us back safely next week to study more about your wondrous character, about who you are. And may it change our lives in Christ's name. Amen.